Well, it's always a wonderful thing whenever God ordains in the ministry and the worship of the church uh, different services, different aspects of the service that, even though we didn't plan it that way, uh, work out to to corroborate with one another. And so I I don't find it a a coincidence that uh, Jackson is going through the Ten Commandments in the Catechism, the questions in the Ten Commandments, and then we come in our, our preaching hour to look at Paul's address to the Corinthians on the subject of idolatry. Uh, we looked at the first commandment this morning, and, and that certainly is a primer to much of what Paul will say to us in 1 Corinthians 10. And we looked last week at verses 14 through 18, and we looked at the subject of idolatry and communion. Idolatry and communion. And uh, this, this week we'll finish that section there and look at verses 19 through 22. And I'm going to preach a message to you entitled, Fellowship with Devils. Fellowship with devils. So let me read to you 1 Corinthians 10, verses 19 through 22. And let me say that before I read this, that in my, in my preparations and in my study, I was especially excited to preach these verses because of the truth that's contained here. And I hope that God will drive this truth home to us as a church. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 19 through 22. These are the words of God. What say I then? That the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? On September 17th, 1862, the Army of the Potomac, led by General George McClellan, and the Army of Northern Virginia, led by General Robert E. Lee, descended upon the town of Sharpsburg, Maryland, for one of the most notorious battles of the American War between the states. Approximately a week before the battle ensued, Union Sergeant John Bloss and Corporal Barton W. Mitchell found a piece of paper lying on the ground wrapped around three cigars. The paper was addressed to General D.H. Hill, and it was entitled Special Order Number 191 Headquarters Army of Northern Virginia. Upon inspection, these men realized that they held in their hands the very battle plans of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. They immediately took this lost paper back to their camp and they handed it over to their General George McClellan. Initially, McClellan responded with jubilation and reportedly said, Here is a paper with which if I cannot whip Bobby Lee, I will go home. With integral knowledge of Lee's battle plans, McClellan could have easily decimated the opposing army and potentially ended the war three years early. However, as the day of battle approached, for reasons historians may never know, McClellan began to doubt the reliability of the plans. 
He was devastatingly slow to respond to the information and he squandered any benefit that would have certainly been gained from possessing the enemy's plans. The results for the Union Army were tragic. Instead of an easy triumph, the results of the battle were inconclusive. And the Battle of Sharpsburg, as it is known in the South, as the South named the battles after cities, but it's known as the Battle of Antietam in the North, as the North named the battles after landmarks. The Battle of Sharpsburg would go down as the single most bloody day of the entire war. 23,000 men were killed in one day, with another 11,000 wounded, missing, or captured. Weeks later, due to his miserable failure, George McClellan would be relieved from his duty as army, uh, as general of Army of the Potomac. I'm telling you this story because one of the indispensable keys to success on the battlefield is an awareness of the enemy. But it avails nothing to possess their plans if we do not act on the acquired information. In his word, God tells us that we have a great enemy, Satan, who is the adversary of our souls. And he tells us in Ephesians 6 and verses 11 and 12 that we are to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. This is the reality of spiritual warfare. Satan and his demons do all that they can to thwart the purposes of God and further the kingdom of darkness through lies, deception, and sin. But Satan is an enemy that we need not fear because we possess his battle plans. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 1, Paul says, We are not ignorant of his devices. We have, in our Bibles, we hold in our hands the battle plans of the enemy. We know that he has been cast down to the earth where he seeks to kill and steal and destroy. 1 Peter 5.8 says that your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He attacks the saints of God with what Ephesians 6.12 calls the fiery darts of the wicked. But not only do we have his battle plans, we also know of his impending and inevitable destruction. We need not fear the devil, because the devil is God's devil. He is a foe, but he is a defeated foe. And he is inexorably bound for an eternity in the lake of fire. It is for this reason that the powers of hell rage the way that they do. Revelation 12.12 tells us, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. With this reality of the spiritual war that rages in our midst, it is imperative for us to know the schemes of Satan and his demons so that we are able to stand against them. But how many spiritual casualties, just 
as the day of Antietam were physical casualties, how many spiritual casualties have there been, not because we didn't possess the plans of the enemy, but because we failed to act upon them. Though a believer, indwelt by the Spirit of God, cannot be demonically possessed, Satan does have in his arsenal of attacks several avenues through which he seeks to oppress and besiege the people of God. And some of these attacks are inevitable. They don't come to us because we've availed ourselves to them, but because Satan hates us. I want you to understand that, that Satan hates you. (laughs) And he hates you more uh, the closer you become to the Lord Jesus Christ and the more you purpose in your heart to worship him. He hates you. He hates us. He hates the church because ultimately he hates the Lord Jesus Christ. However, these attacks of, of Satan... Though they are inevitable upon our lives, through willful disobedience and sin, we avail ourselves to them and we make ourselves even more vulnerable than we already are. So what are some of these attacks? Let me begin by just listing some of them for you. Number one, demonic oppression causes us to resist the will of God. Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23 You remember the setting there? Christ has just announced that upon this rock he will build his church and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not prevail against the church. And then he proceeds to tell his disciples how he will go and how he will suffer and how he will die. Let me read to you Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23. The Bible says, From that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. When Jesus revealed to Peter that it was God's will for him to go to the cross and suffer and die, it's hard for us to even fathom, but Peter had the audacity to rebuke the Lord. Where does such audacity come from? Well, through Jesus' response, we see that Peter resisted the will of God under a demonic influence. And Jesus rebuked that demonic influence and said, get behind me, Satan. Secondly, demonic oppression causes us to lie to God. Acts 5 and verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? There is nothing more that Satan who is the father of lies, wants more than for us to partake in his falsehoods. And we lie to God when we, like Ananias, are not honest about ourselves. We're not honest about our own godliness. We're not honest about our our personal deeds of piety. But we try to put on a show, and we might think that we can put on a show uh, in the presence of others, but demonic oppression causes us to be so foolish as to think that we can put on this show before God himself. And when we do so, when we feign a godliness that we do not possess, we are engaging in satanic behavior because we are lying to God. Thirdly, demonic oppression causes us to be hindered in our faithfulness to Christ. 
Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And notice what Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. What does that mean? Brothers and sisters, that means that apart from the intercession of Christ, demonic oppression can cause our faith in some way to fail. Have you noticed, by the way, that thus far all of these examples have involved the Apostle Peter? Why why do you think that is? Is it because Peter was uh, overly immature and and, and was not strong enough to withstand these attacks? Well, uh, certainly Peter had his deficiencies, but I actually think the answer is going in the opposite direction. Because Satan knew how God had purposed to greatly use Peter. In the apostolic church, uh, in Jerusalem, in the birth of the New Testament church, Peter was the man that God used to do so many great things. The first 12 chapters of the book of Acts are really the Acts of Peter. If you're going to be greatly used of God, and if you've purposed in your heart to live unto His service and unto His glory, not just as a preacher, but as a Christian, If you've purposed to have a godly marriage, Satan will come after it. If you've purposed to raise your children in a godly way, Satan will come after them. If you've purposed to discipline yourself for godliness and and committing yourself to reading the scriptures and praying and attending church, Satan will do all that he can to hinder you. But be encouraged by the words of our Lord, I have prayed for you, that your faith fail not. Furthermore, demonic oppression causes us to face opposition in doing the will of God. After Acts chapter 12, with the gospel going forth to the Gentiles, Peter kind of falls off the scene, and who is God's man for the rest of the New Testament? Well, it's the Apostle Paul. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 18, Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and time again, but Satan hindered us. You say, brother, what does that mean? And I confess to you that in some ways I just simply do not know. And you read ten different commentators and they simply do not know how Satan was able to hinder the Apostle Paul from going to Thessalonica. But there it is in the Word of God. Paul said, I wanted to go. I wanted to preach to you. I wanted to fellowship with you. I wanted to be among you. And Satan hindered me. Lastly, demonic oppression causes us to be tempted with sin. Tempted with sin. Luke 4, verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. Now if the devil was brazen enough to tempt our Lord Jesus Christ... What a small thing it must be for him and his demons to tempt us. Laying snares before our eyes, enticing us to act upon the lusts of our flesh, besieging us with intrusive, ungodly thoughts. For this reason, we are reminded in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity 
to the obedience of Christ. We must fight this battle in our souls and we must consecrate our hearts and our minds to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to be very balanced in our view of spiritual warfare. If this was the only sermon you ever heard me preach, you might go away with a view of of your struggles with sin and the battles of your own flesh in a way that's very imbalanced. A lot of times, the things that we say, well, the devil made me do it. No, it's just us being stupid and us succumbing to the temptations of the flesh. Uh, But yet, we must also realize that there is a reality to spiritual warfare. And many times, it's not an either-or. It's a both-and. When we chase after the lusts of our flesh, Satan is right there to encourage us. And when Satan comes to attack us, he will often exploit our own sinful deficiencies. So we need to be aware that our adversary is great, but greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now I've given this lengthy introduction and demonstrated these several ways that Satan attacks Christians in order to provide some helpful context and to set the stage for the question that our text seeks to answer. And that question is is this. What is the primary way in which Satan finds a beachhead to level these attacks? How do we make ourselves vulnerable and susceptible to these attacks? We've stated that Christians are indwelt by the Spirit of God and thus have that that barrier of protection, that hedge about them. But what ways, because I'm preaching this morning primarily to Christians here, what ways do we as believers make ourselves vulnerable to the attacks of Satan and allow him a foothold in our life? Well, the answer is through the sins of idolatry and false worship. Idolatry and false worship. Let's look to our text. Beginning in verse 19, there's three things I want you to see. And the first is the predication. The predication. Paul begins and he says, What say I then? So he's about to give us an answer that's predicated upon that which he's already said. And uh, my apologies for breaking up the apostle's thought in in, in mid-sentence here, but uh, unless you wanted me to preach to you two hours last Sunday, I, I had to for necessity of time. But you must understand that when Paul says, What say I then? He is referring back to everything he's already said in verses 14 and on down. And Paul begins in verse 19 by asking two questions that assume a negative answer. The first is this question, What say I then? But then he he says, That the idol is anything? Or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? Paul is anticipating the questions of his audience based upon what he's just said in verses 14 through 18. And perhaps this is your question too, after spending a whole sermon looking at the command to flee idolatry, and we spent a considerable amount of time looking at a detailed discussion of the Lord's Supper, perhaps you're, you're sitting there and you're thinking, what's the point, Paul? What, what is the point with all of this? These questions are intended to guard against a false inference from Paul's mode of reasoning. And the reasoning is this. The Lord's Supper is a religious act of worship that brings you into fellowship with the one true and living God. And the logical question is what? 
Well, is my idolatry bringing me into fellowship with idols? Is my idolatry bringing me into fellowship with false gods? Does that mean that idolatrous acts of worship bring me into some sort of communion with another deity other than the Lord Jesus Christ? And Paul answers that question with an emphatic no. Paul says, you can't fellowship with idols because as I've already told you in 8.4, chapter 8, verse 4, an idol is nothing, okay? You're not helping me, Paul. What's your point then? If, if I can't fellowship with the idols because the idols are nothing and the false gods are no gods at all, then what's the danger? Why even warn against idolatry? Seems pretty harmless if the gods are not even real. And here's Paul's answer. The idols themselves are nothing, but standing behind those nothings are somethings. Undergirding and supporting and propagating and furthering the worship of idols are demonic beings that embody and enter into the false worship of idolatry. Demons who yearn to be worshipped as only God is to be worshipped. Demons who lust for adoration. Demons who crave the attention of mankind. Demons who long to be in the place of God. You understand, that is what got Satan cast out in the first place. Wanting to receive the worship that only God is to receive. Demons who love nothing more than to especially see Christians, especially see Christians, pay homage to them by participating in idolatry. Why do you think Satan set his sights upon Job in the Old Testament? Because Satan wanted to go after a spiritual follower of Jehovah. Satan wants to see you, Christian. He wants to see you fall into idolatry. Yes, he's pleased when he sees some unbeliever uh, chase after the lust of his flesh. Oh, but when he sees you, you who claim the name of Christ, you who uh, confess that his blood has cleansed you, you who worship him, who come to church, who read your Bible, when he sees you chasing after false gods, he's pleased. He's pleased. Paul says, you're asking me where is the danger in idolatry? I'll tell you where it is. Even though your gods are false and your idols are nothing, idolatry has a destructive effect upon the soul because of the demons that inhabit it. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 20. He says, but I say, he's told us what he's not saying, now he's telling us what he is saying, but I say, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. Now the word translated here as devils, or it might be translated demons in your version, is a word that the Greeks used to refer to all deities, whether good or bad. Remember that Greek mythology, and Greek mythology is Roman mythology with different names, (coughs) Remember that that first century polytheistic religion, this Greco-Roman religion, it taught that there was a panoply of deities. There there was a a hierarchy of deities. Some gods were more powerful than the others. Uh, Some gods were good. Some gods were evil. In Acts 17, 
when Paul preached on Mars Hill, the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers, they used this word when they said in verse 18 or, or verse 19, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. It's the same word that's translated devils. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul does something brilliant with this word. Do you see it? Do you see what he's doing with this word? This word that the Greeks used to refer to all deities, good or bad, deities that really were not that much more <laughs> exalted than man. Paul uses this word not to refer to all deities because he knows that idols are nothing and that there's only one true deity. But he uses this word to distinguish the one true living God from the demons that perpetuate idolatry. It's brilliant when you really stop and consider what the Apostle Paul is doing. What he's saying, therefore, is this. Satan is the originator of all false religion. That's what he's saying here. What you call deities, good or bad, no, they're all just the creations and the offspring of Satan. And there's only one true deity, and his name is Jehovah God. When we use this word religion, when we say that Satan is the creator of all false religions, we're using this word religion in its generic definition. If you look it up in Webster's Dictionary, you'll find something that goes along the lines of a system of belief in a higher power or deity. And when we speak of religious fellowship, we're talking about the manner through which man communes with that deity. As we've seen in the Christian religion, one of the ways that believers commune with God is through the faithful partaking of the Lord's Supper. The Christian religion teaches that religion, religious fellowship, one of the ways that we experience religious fellowship is through partaking of the Lord's Supper in faith. And if you're following Paul, then you'll see how he now says, and this is really magnificent. It's magnificent when you see what Paul's doing here. Paul says that idolatry then is the means of having religious fellowship not with idols because they're nothing, but with demons. And this is true of every false religion. Our postmodern society wants to tell you things like, oh, Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. We've all heard that. Therefore, it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you feel like you have a personal connection with God. Or you'll hear them say something like, at the end of the day, we're all worshiping the same God anyways, and you have your truths, and I have my truths, and you have your ways of worshiping God, and I have my ways of worshiping God. Uh, you, you go to church, and you read the Bible, and uh, you sing hymns, and you hear preaching. I go on my bass boat, and out there on Kentucky Lake, when that water's crystal and the, the fog is rising, I can worship God. One person explained to me one time, he said that it's just like this. It's as simple as this. You know, there's different routes to get to the post office. I leave my house and I make a right turn and I go down Main Street and then I turn left and then 
I stop at the stop sign and make a right, and then I get to the post office. You leave your house, and you make a left turn, and then you go down 1st Street and take a left up 2nd, and then you, you know, go right at the roundabout, and then you get to the post office that way. The problem is, when you die, you're not going to the post office. And Jesus said that narrow is the way that leads to life. And he's not in Matthew 7 when he says that. He's not speaking about the number of of those that will be saved. He's speaking about the exclusivity of the gospel of Christ as the only means of salvation. So regardless of how controversial this is in our day of subjective truth, the words of the apostle are clear. Satan is the originator of all false religions, and he fabricates those religions to keep people from following the one true religion, which is biblical Christianity. And by the way, that doesn't just apply to historical organized religions like Hinduism and Islam. This is true of any system of religion redounding to idols and false gods. This includes the idol of self and the religion of me worship. This includes the idol of science, falsely so-called, and the religion of atheism. Paul says here that when you begin to peel back the layers, you will eventually find that Satan is the mastermind behind all of these deceptions and that contrary to the truth of the word of God and the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ, they do not bring you into fellowship with the one true and living God, but they bring you into communion with demons. Now, this is a big statement, so I want to be careful to prove it to you. So hold your place in 1 Corinthians 10 and come with me to 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1. I'm going to show you that Paul is consistent in the belief that Satan is the originator of all false religions. Notice what he says in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1. He says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. Again, Paul takes pains to differentiate between the Spirit of God and the demonic spirits of idolatry. You and I both know that the entirety of the Word of God is breathed out by the Spirit of God, that holy men spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. But Paul, on purpose, reminds us in 1 Timothy 4.1 that this is something that the Spirit is saying. Well, what's the Spirit saying? That in the latter times... Let me just remind you that the latter times is a reference to the period of time between the first and second advents of Christ. We've been in these times for the last 2,000 years, and we'll be in these times until Jesus comes back. And it's important for you to know that, uh, because there are some people that think that church history began last Tuesday, and they think it's going to end next Friday, and they think that we've just now entered into these last times, and they use a newspaper to interpret their Bible. Uh, But the truth is, this has always been the case. These are battles that the church has always been fighting. In the latter times, what's going to happen in the latter times? Some shall depart from the faith. The faith is not a reference to personal saving faith, but it's a reference to that system of truth that makes up the Christian religion. Paul is not saying that some will lose their salvation. They will lose saving faith. But he's saying that there will be some who will turn away from the truth of the Word of God. They will invent and fabricate false religions 
in the place of biblical Christianity. Why do they do this? Well, notice what he says there in verse 1. He says they do this because they are giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. This is the naked truth of idolatry. False religion is predicated upon and peddled by demons and seducing spirits. And when we engage in idolatry, we enter into religious fellowship with those demonic beings. We have communion with them. We give them an open hearing. We give them an open hearing. We give them a beachhead in our heart. Satan already wishes to cast snares before you and throw fiery darts at you, but when you begin to engage in idolatry, it's as if you take off the armor and you run out into the middle of the battlefield and you're just begging him to shoot you down. That's what's so dangerous about idolatry. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 10 and notice what Paul says. He says, and I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Why the warning, Paul? Why are you being so so staunch on this point? Why are you guarding against us going down to the temple and enjoying the feast? Because I don't want you, Paul says, to have fellowship with demons. It is because of this truth of the demonic nature of idolatry that Paul issues this warning. This warning against participating in the pagan worship of false religion. You say, this this is something that just happens in third world countries on the mission field. And indeed it does. In in countries where uh, the gospel is is so little known and many times the truth of Jesus Christ are being preached for the very first time and there's such a satanic stronghold in many of those societies, a lot of times you will see a lot of demonic activity when the gospel goes forth. But what Paul wants you to understand is that this could happen right here in this church if we begin to engage in the sins of idolatry. There's a well-known preacher who told a story about something that happened early on in his ministry. He had been the pastor of the church only for a few months and he got a call in the middle of the night. One of the young people in his church uh, was, was uh, just not herself she was clearly out of it, and she was speaking in a, in a different voice. She just had a glazed look over her eyes, and her roommates, who were also members of the church, were concerned, and, and they called him, and he uh, got a fellow elder, and they went, and they confronted this young lady who was a member of the church, and they read scripture, and they prayed, and eventually she, she collapsed on the floor, and she came to, and he had her read the entirety of Romans 8, And he left and went home and the next Sunday he saw her at church and she was back right in her own mind. And a follow-up conversation happened and she told him, she said, Pastor, if you knew the type of demonic things that here recently I'd been getting into and playing around with, uh, you wouldn't be surprised that I had that spell that I had, that I behaved the way that I did. I don't share this story with you to sensationalize the reality of spiritual warfare. But I do want you to understand that uh, these things do happen and these things are realities in the church. And much of what science wants to medicate 
with a pill and wants to give you a prescription for oftentimes is a result to opening ourselves and availing ourselves to the attacks of the enemy. And the Bible says in Matthew 25 in verse 41 that, that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. And Satan's desire is to take as many with him as he can. All who die in the sin of idolatry will spend their eternity with the devil and his demons that they communed with on earth. Let me put it to you this way. Whoever you're spiritually communing with in this life will be who you spend eternity with in the next life. Are you communing with God? Do you have a relationship with Him now? Are you worshiping Him now? Well, then you will spend eternity worshiping Him. Uh, But if you are engaging in the sins of idolatry, uh, if you are engaging in, uh, in the sins of false worship, then you will spend eternity with the deity that you've given your life to in this earth. Therefore, idolatry, all idolatry, is ultimately an offering, a tribute, a homage to the father of lies. You object and you say, well, I know plenty of people who, though they do not worship Jesus Christ, would never worship Satan. They're lost people, but they're not, they're not satanic worshipers. They have no intentions to fellowship with demons. And what Paul is saying here, this is why idolatry is so dangerous. None of the Corinthians had the intention to fellowship with demons. None of them did. What Paul is saying is that it doesn't matter what your intentions are. The question is not what they meant to do, but what they in fact did. A man need not intend to burn himself when he puts his hand into the fire in order for him to burn himself. Idolaters often don't intend on worshiping Satan. They intend on satisfying their lusts. But follow me for a second. If Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light, do you think he can disguise himself as an idol, as a false god? as a promise of pleasure and satisfying your lust? Paul's goal, nor mine, was to produce fear in his hearers. Though demonic oppression and satanic activity are very real things, God tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, or chapter 1, verse 7, He tells us that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So we ought not be looking for a demon behind every blade of grass. Nor should we fear these forces of darkness. But we must be aware of their devices. And we must flee the idolatry that brings us into fellowship with them. As we stated last week, it's not enough to just say, well, I went to church on Sunday and I read my Bible, therefore I'm not committing the sin of idolatry. It is very possible, in fact, we see it all throughout the Word of God, that oftentimes, if we have a, an external religion, it can make us even more susceptible to, the fear of, or to, to committing the sin of idolatry because we're unaware of it, and we justify ourselves. It is possible to sit even in the house of God on a Sunday morning and yet have idols harbored in our heart. And so may God help us and give us the grace to flee this sin and consecrate ourselves wholly unto Him. This is the predication. Paul wants us to understand 
that the reason why idolatry is so dangerous is because it brings us into fellowship with demons and it opens us up and avails us to the attacks of the enemy. But secondly, in our text, in verse 21, I want you to see the prohibition. The prohibition. Notice what Paul says. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Now, I want this word, cannot, it's repeated twice in this verse, I want it to leap off of your page. God does not say, you ought not. God says, you cannot. These are two kingdoms in conflict. These are two forces that are diametrically opposed to one another. To come faithfully to the Lord's table is to renounce all false gods, but to commit the sin of idolatry is to forsake Christ. Paul is not saying that such behavior is inconsistent. He's saying that it's impossible. I want the words of the apostle to weigh heavy upon your heart. If you are safeguarding pockets of idolatry in your heart and in your affections, do not think that you can come to church on Sunday and worship Christ. Don't fool yourself. You cannot do it. I'm not talking, of course, about besetting sins that you struggle with and repent of. If worshiping Christ in spirit and truth required perfect personal obedience, none of us could worship Him. I'm talking about those things in your life that you know are contrary to His Word. You know they're antagonistic to His will. You know they don't bring Him honor and glory. You know they're a hindrance to your personal holiness, yet you cling on to them anyways. And when the Word of Christ comes to you through the Spirit and says, let it go, forsake it, repent of it, you say, no, Lord, I will not do it. That is an idol. And those idols in your life make it impossible for you to truly worship Jesus Christ. Now some of you here today may be sitting here and you have examined your heart and you have said, by God's grace, I know of no idol that that holds my affections this way. But perhaps some of you, even as I'm preaching this and as I'm saying these things, there's something that just comes to the forefront of your attention. Whatever it is, whatever it is, I want you to understand that it's far more dangerous than you realize. And that it is hindering you and keeping you and making it impossible for you to worship Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? And the answer is none. He has no fellowship with them. Therefore, Paul says, you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of devils. You cannot do it. And by the way, what what he's saying here is not just that you shouldn't be allowed to, which is true. But he's saying that you can take those elements and you can drink the wine and you can eat the bread. But if you're harboring idolatry in your heart, you're not communing with Christ when you observe the table. Oh, there were some who tried in chapter 11. And what does Paul say about them? For this reason, 
Many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. If you eat and drink unworthily, you don't receive a blessing. You're eating and drinking damnation to yourself. And those idolaters who went to the temple and communed with devils and then showed up to church and tried to commune with Christ, some of them became weak, some of them became sick, some of them died. This is serious business. And it is much better for you to abstain than it is to eat and drink unworthily. Which is one of the reasons why we practice the table the way that we do. Because we see the seriousness. We see how serious it is to come to the table with a heart that is not right before God. And we want to ensure that those who come are receiving the spiritual care and accountability of the local church. Listen to what Calvin says. He says, Let us know, therefore, that we are then and only then admitted by Christ to the sacred feast of his body and blood when we have first of all bid farewell to everything sacrilegious. For the man who would enjoy the one must renounce the other. Oh, thrice miserable the condition of those who from fear of displeasing men do not hesitate to pollute themselves with unlawful superstitions. For by acting in this way, they voluntarily renounce fellowship with Christ and obstruct their approach to his help-giving table. You cannot partake in the Lord's table and the table of demons. You cannot do it. And lastly, I want you to see verse 22, the provocation. The provocation. Paul says, Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Imagine, if you will, a man who works hard to build a home for his bride, to provide for her every need, to put food on the table for her to eat. But instead of coming home to him and eating from his table and communing with him, she goes out and she gets in the bed of another man. Now, if that husband isn't jealous, he is a wicked husband. Because one, he doesn't value his bride's fidelity. It doesn't bother him that his bride is whoring around with other men. And number two, he's a wicked husband because he doesn't protect what is owed to him in the marriage covenant. Brothers and sisters, the Lord our God is a jealous God. And our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, will not sit idly by while his bride commits spiritual adultery. He has every right to demand that he be without rival and that we as his people do not have a divided devotion. And because of his infinite glory... His jealousy is perfectly righteous. Do you understand why it's a sin for us to be jealous and put ourselves first? Because our glory is nothing to be jealous over. But our God, who is infinitely glorious, it is righteous for Him to be jealous for the sake of His own glory 
and the fidelity of his people. To put it another way, he loves us too much to allow us to live in soul-destructive idolatry. He loves you so much, Christian, that he will sooner take you out of this world than he will allow you to become an idolater and run around on him. Rather than suffering the Corinthians who partook of the Lord's table and the table of devils to live in that idolatry, he simply took them out. You say, well, that doesn't happen today. How do we know that? How do we know that? Again, I, I'm, I'm trying to be careful here. I'm trying to tread lightly because I understand the, the plethora of false teachers that have abused these principles. But I don't see anywhere in the Bible where God says, I don't value the Lord's table the way I used to. When we come to the table of the Lord and we're living in the sin of idolatry, we fooled the pastor, we fooled the church. We may have even fooled ourselves, but we haven't fooled the one who sets the table before us. And brothers and sisters, that time of examination could literally be a matter of life or death for your soul and your life. Notice Paul says, are we stronger than he? What what is he really asking here? Are we tempting him to act? By committing flagrant acts of idolatry and then showing up for the Lord's table, you're tempting Christ. You're tempting Him, brothers and sisters. Job 9 and verse 4 says, Who has hardened himself against Him and prospered? And the answer is no one. This is the same sin He confronted them with in verse 9. Neither let us tempt Christ. And what was the result of tempting Christ? They were destroyed of serpents. May this portion of Scripture, as it has me, cause you to stand in awe of a God whose honor and majesty transcends our human experience. We do not worship a God who is like us, but we worship an almighty God that will sovereignly protect His glory and safeguard our purity even if it means taking us out of this world so that our idolatry will finally come to an end. About idol you have hid away in your heart? About which you keep telling yourself, oh, it's no big deal? Do you see that idolatry and false worship is an affront to the glory of God? And may we beseech God as His people to reveal to us the secrets of our heart and give us the grace to forsake these idols and turn from them and worship and serve Christ alone. Well, as we near the end of Paul's discussion on this subject, I want to leave you with two things. Number one, if idolatry and false worship opens us up to demonic oppression and makes us susceptible to the attacks of Satan, then what are the guards from these things? What what could you do to Guard yourself and protect yourself and gird yourself against the enemy's attacks. Well, if idolatry is what opens you up to it, then what do you think it is that guards you from it? It is worshiping the one true and living God in the way that he's prescribed according to his word. And in order for you to worship in spirit and in truth, you must worship the right God in the right way. And in his word, 
you will find that God has laid out true worship as being faithfully united to a body of believers where the gospel is preached, where the word of God is read, where spiritual prayers are prayed, where psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are sung, and where the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are scripturally observed. You don't protect yourself from Satan by getting in your bathroom and looking in the mirror and repeating some superstitious jargon that's going to ward off evil spirits. You resist the devil by worshiping God according to the truth of the Bible. That's how you resist him. And the Bible says, resist the devil, and what? He will flee from you. How did Jesus fight him? With the word of God. He answered him according to the word of God. As it is written, our Lord said. May we at this church, when we come to worship, do those things which are written. And worship the God who has revealed himself in the written word. And secondly, let me close by telling you this. Our Lord Jesus Christ is pleased to save idolaters. If you are here today and you have come to an honest consideration of your heart and you realize that you are an idolater, that the ultimate object of your love and your devotion is service to a false god, could be a golden statue, but it could also be a job a person, a relationship. It could be money. It could be some other material possession. Whatever it is, you must know that Jesus Christ went to the cross of Calvary and He shed His blood so that idolaters could be freed from the bondage of their false gods. And if you cling on to them, they will surely bring your soul into everlasting destruction. But if you, right now, in this very moment, renounce those idols and place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, not only will He give you the grace to forsake those idols, but you will become a worshiper of the true God. And you will enter into religious fellowship and communion with Him through faith, and you will spend an eternity as a worshiper of Jesus Christ Himself. And so I ask you, what idol could there be? What in this world so allures you Is it fame? Is it being rich? Is it a reputation? What is it about this world that so captivates your heart that you would have it and not the darling Son of God? Oh, may you see Him today as altogether lovely. May you see Him today as the satisfier of your soul. May you see Him today as the one who has loved you the way no one else has ever loved you. Your idols have never went to a cross for you. Your false gods have never died for you. They were not resurrected and ascended. They do not intercede for you. Jesus Christ is the one who does these things for his people. And my prayer is that he would do that right now. If there is one here that is an idolater, that he would give us the grace to repent and believe upon his life-giving blood. And if that is you, believe the gospel of Christ. Forsake your false gods. If you're a Christian here and you, re- you realize that, that though Christ is, is your, chief, uh, your chief source of joy and the ultimate object of your worship, yet you've noticed that there are some things that are creeping in 
and they're starting to compete for the preeminence of Christ in your life, may His grace and the gospel give you the power afresh and anew to renounce those idols and consecrate yourself wholly unto Him. Forsake the false gods of your idolatry and the demonic forces that wish to damn your soul and worship the risen, ascended, glorious Lord Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us yet again, Lord. The word of God is quick and it is powerful. And Father, as I preach some of these things and as we consider some of these things, I'm honest that... uh, Uh, these are not comfortable things to think about, but yet we find them all throughout your word, the reality that there is a war raging in the unseen realm. Oh God, would you help us to put on the whole armor of God that we might be able to withstand the wiles of the devil, Uh, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, and that idolatry would not enter into this body of believers. Father, I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves us from our idolatry, saves us from our false worship, and gives us the grace to worship the true and living God. Oh Lord, may you help us and do this thing for your own honor and glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.